0: Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. In 2005, an art project called Post Secret was created. You write a secret on a homemade postcard and mail it to the artist who posted selected secrets in his blog. The only rule? It had to be true and never spoken before. What if we turn those into prayers instead? Matthew Terrell, Reformed University Fellowship Pastor at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, continues the series, The Church, Aspects of the Christian Community, with this message entitled, A Community That Prays, which covers Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Thank you for joining us today. Back a number of years
1: ago, a long time ago, when my wife and I first came to Atlanta together, we came to the in-town congregation of Perimeter Church, back at a time in which our church, Perimeter, was living out his calling with multiple campuses, but with campus pastors at each place. And at that time, Brian and Cindy Terrell were leaders of the in-town congregation. They're still key leaders of that church today. Brian and Cindy have a daughter and three sons, and our preacher today is the first of those three sons. And he was just two, three weeks old when Morgan and I came here. And so I was privileged to be his pastor for the first 13 years of his life. And that he's preaching today is a testimony that I didn't mess him up too bad in those... Somehow he survived me. and uh, But very thankful for the Terrell family. But you need to know the reason Matt is here today is not because of family connections. It's because of the hand of God upon his life. After finishing Lakeside High School, we went on to Clemson University and was involved there with Reformed University Fellowship, which is our denomination's campus ministry. That's where he met his wife, Megan. They headed on later to Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis where Megan got a master's degree in uh, educational ministries. Matt got a Master of Divinity degree. And since 2012, Matt has been the campus minister or the campus pastor of Reformed University Fellowship at Samford University, which is also my alma mater. So I'm thankful to see that he's there trying to help those Baptist kids in some way or another uh, at that Baptist university and uh, thankful for that. But uh, Matt is not only a gifted musician, a gifted preacher, a gifted leader, you're going to be blessed by his message. And uh, he and Megan have two children, little son, Elliot. A little girl named Zoe. So Matt, let me ask you to come on up, brother. Let's welcome Matt and uh, let me pray for him and ask you to give your attention to the word of God under his heart. Okay, Lord, we Lord, thank you that uh, you have touched Matt's life. And as I just, just said, he is not here because of family connections. He is here because of your hand upon his life. You're gifting to him, you're calling to him. And Lord, now as he uh, clearly and wonderfully will be bringing your word to us, we ask you that we would submit ourselves to the word of God under him, that this would be instructive for our lives, that we would hear the good news of Christ in his message, good news for us, and speak to us. We thank you for Matt, for his family, and uh, we ask you to use him now in our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Thank you, Bob. Actually, I... It's so weird for me. It's still weird for me to call you Bob. You're Mr. Cargo forever. (laughs) Pastor Cargo forever in my mind. It it is an honor and a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, The last couple of weeks, um, during this series, the Young Leaders series, when when all of us got together to try to figure out what is it we're going to teach. We wanted to teach something, unified something together uh, during this series. And we thought, why don't we talk about, since we're all coming from perimeter and her daughter churches. why don't we talk about the church why don't we talk about what it looks like to be the community of God's people so a couple of weeks ago you heard from Andy and Andy talked about what it looks like to live distinctively that because we belong to Jesus because you belong to Jesus that means that we live in a way that's different than the world around us and then last week Hayes talked to you about what it looks like to live out of our common identity in Christ that what binds us together is not our socioeconomic status or our race or our common interests, or what, what binds us together is our common union with the crucified and risen Jesus. And the question before us this morning is: how do we become those kinds of people? How do we become the kind of people that God is calling us to be and recreating us to be by His grace? How do we become people who live distinctively and live out our identity in Jesus? How do we become who Jesus created us to be? There are a lot of ways we could answer that question. But one of the main ways, one of of the main means that God has given to his people to transform them, to reshape them in his image is prayer. Prayer. Now, I recognize that when I say the word prayer, that some of you immediately, when you hear me say prayer, you hear we're gonna talk about prayer, you see it in your uh, points to remember in your bulletin, you immediately get a knot in your stomach. Because when you think about prayer, you think, and you think about a preacher standing up and talking about prayer, you think, great, here comes the guilt trip. And I already feel guilty enough about my prayer life. I don't need that today. Or when you think about prayer, you think about your frustration with your life, how it has not gone the way that you thought it would go, and you wonder, was I not praying enough? Was I not praying rightly that God was not answering my prayers? You think about disappointment. You think about um, the hurt in your life. You you think about prayer, and you think it's confusing. And some of you on the other side of the spectrum, you think about prayer, and you think joy. Joy. think life connection with God it's renewing it's refreshing you think it's beautiful and some of you if you're like me it just depends on the day sometimes you think about prayer and you feel guilt and shame and sometimes you think about prayer and you think yes and Jesus knows that prayer is a mixed bag the prayer is all over the place. And that's why here in this passage, I think he's actually inviting us to admit this, and he says simply, I know it's difficult. So pray like this. Pray like this. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, is Jesus' teaching on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look together at God's word Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse seven. This is God's word and not mine, so let's pray together and ask for his help as we look at it this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you give us your word, that you do not leave us in the dark to fend for ourselves, but that you speak to us. You speak the truth about who you are, you speak the truth about who we are, you speak the truth about what it means to live life in this world as your people. we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would speak the truth, Holy Spirit. And as you do so, do what only you can do, which is bring the dead to life. Would you do that in us? Would you make us holy? Would you make us whole? By your word and by your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There are a lot of things that we could look at from this particular passage this morning. We we probably could have spent the whole summer looking at the Lord's Prayer and unpacking all of the richness that's that's in here. But we're gonna do something a little ambitious this morning. We're gonna try to take this whole passage and tease out four things. Four things that this text teaches us about prayer. And the first thing that it teaches us is that prayer is personal. Prayer is personal. Oftentimes when we pray, uh, we treat prayer and we treat God in prayer like the greeter at Walmart. Um, you know, when you, go, when you go to Walmart and you walk in and the, the big sliding doors, they open up and there's the carts to your left and you're scrambling to get your kids in. And right in front of you is a sweet old lady in a blue vest. And her whole purpose in life is to stand there and to welcome you to Walmart. And so you're getting your kids ready and you, you're pulling out your list and she just says, hi, welcome to Walmart, and you're like, hi, and, you, and then you keep on going, right, and you move your way through Walmart, and you move your way up and down the aisles, and you're just filling your cart with what you want and what you need, and you're not thinking about that sweet old lady at all, you're just thinking, okay, I'm looking at my list, and what do I need, and then you go through Walmart, and you check out, and you pay for all your stuff, and then you're walking out, and then there's that lady again, and her other purpose in life is to tell you goodbye when you leave Walmart, and so you're leaving Walmart, and she, she says, have a nice day, or maybe she looks over your receipt and looks in your cart and makes sure you're not stealing anything, and then, and then you leave. And that's her whole purpose, and your whole experience inside Walmart is not actually shaped by this woman saying hello and bye to you on either end. And this is often how we think about prayer. That when we come to God and we pray, we begin with, with a nice hello to God, dear Jesus, or... Um, dear lord or our father in heaven even and then we just go on kind of filling up our cart with our wants and our needs i'd love this promotion it'd be nice if my kids would obey me Um, you know with our wants and our needs and we're not our prayers aren't actually being shaped by who god is and then we say goodbye on the way out in jesus name amen But our prayer is not, the the content, everything in between is not actually being shaped by who God is. So when Jesus teaches us about prayer, he starts with the who. Because he understands that prayer at its foremost is personal. That we're praying to someone and our prayers should be shaped by that. So when he starts, he starts with our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus here is actually marrying two important ideas together in this simple phrase, our Father in heaven. He's saying when you pray, you're praying to a father. And particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, the language of father um, connotes tenderness and care and compassion and love. That This is a father who is not absent, but a father who is present. Providing for and protecting his children. But then he marries this idea of father with with God's heavenliness, our father in heaven. And when when you think of heaven, don't just think of a place, think of power. Think of God's power. That, That God is in heaven, and it's not just the place where he resides, it's the place where he rules, where he sits on the throne and rules with his grace and his power Over all things. Heaven is the control room of the cosmos. So, so what that means is that God is the creator, He's in control, He's ruling and reigning. And so, God is not only a father who loves and cares and provides and protects, but He's also the creator, He's in control, He's the king over all things. And Jesus is bringing these two ideas together when we pray very intentionally. The reason He's doing this is because oftentimes, We think of God as either father, merely father, or merely in heaven. That if your default is just sort of to think of God as merely father, uh, then, then God for you is mostly just there to make you happy. And your prayers are just about the things that you want from God to make you happy. That God is there um, to give you your best life now. And he's he's not really saying or doing hard things. He's not going to challenge you. He's not going to push you or stretch you beyond yourself. Because he's just there to love me, man. Make me feel good. That's God as merely Father. On the other hand, many of us often think of God as merely in heaven, which means that God's job is not to make me happy, but to keep me in line. And to keep everybody else in line, too. And so God, far from only saying happy things, he only says hard things. He's always disappointed. He's cold. He's distant. But Jesus says the God of the Bible is neither one of those things. The God of the Bible is actually somehow both of those things together. He's a father in heaven. He's not a vending machine God that I can just sort of put in my religious good works and then get out the life of happiness that I think I deserve. But he's also not an angry tyrant up in heaven just waiting to be disappointed and waiting for you to screw up. He's something far more dynamic and far more beautiful than that. He is a personal father who knows you, who loves you, who's caring for you and meeting your needs he's also God. We can't be boxed in. He can't be manipulated into giving us what we want or what we think we need, but he is always committed to your good. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? What this means is that prayer is personal because prayer is not a, it's not a transaction it's not a transaction to please god to get you know to get this vending machine god to give me what i want i'm going to do this thing and then he's going to give me what i think i want out of life but it's also not a transaction to appease god to get him off your back so i don't have to feel guilty anymore instead prayer is is conversation it's communication it is participation in a relationship with a God, with a Father who loves you and who's caring for you, which means prayer is less of a chore and more of a joy because we're communing with a God who is deeply committed to our good. Prayer is personal. Secondly, prayer is hopeful. Jesus starts with, okay, prayer is personal. We're starting with our Father in heaven and then he continues with six petitions and the first three petitions are this he says we pray hallowed be your name your kingdom come and your will be done now this prayer hallowed be your name is just a fancy way of saying may your name be treated as holy as set apart as the name above all names may your name be acknowledged as that The prayer for his kingdom to come is that his rule and his reign of justice and peace and righteousness and goodness and grace, for that reign to be extended both in my life and in the world around me, for the reign of God to be extended and deepened in the world, and for his will to be done is a prayer for God's design, for God's intention for the world to be furthered, to be extended, to be accomplished and fully realized And then these three petitions are ended with this tag at the end of verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. And what that tag means is that for all three of these things, what we're praying is that um, all that is true in heaven, may it also be true on earth. All that is true up above, may it be true down below. So to the extent that God's name is hallowed in heaven, and it is hallowed perfectly in heaven, may it be so on earth. And to the extent that God's rule and reign um, is extended in heaven, and it is extended completely and fully in heaven, may it be so on earth. And to the extent that uh, that God's will is accomplished in heaven, may it be so on earth. That's our prayer. Think about it this way. Think about the sun on a cloudy day. I love a good summer rainstorm where it's sunny for most of the day and then all of a sudden the clouds move in and it could be one o'clock in the afternoon but it looks like the sun is setting. It is dark, the air is thick. And in that moment, even though it's one o'clock in the afternoon, it feels as though the sun has ceased to shine. But that's not really true. Because if you got in an airplane or if you got in a helicopter and you flew up around and above the storm, the sun would still be shining and the clouds would be below you And what what Jesus is calling us to when he says, um, pray this way, pray on earth as it is in heaven, Is what we're praying is for the sun to break through the clouds. That what is true above, may it become true below. For the light of God's grace and God's kingdom and God's will, of God's name, to, to break through the darkness of this world and to shine and to be extended and to be complete as the waters cover the sea. And the reason that this is hopeful is because when we pray this way, it is an invitation for us to place our hope anew in the true king. Rather than in ourselves or in our careers or in our children or in our spouses or in our bank accounts or whatever it is, to place our hope anew in the true king. Because what we're doing is we're acknowledging that what I need most and what the world needs most is for Jesus' name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to be extended, for his will to be done. To put it simply, it is an invitation to rest. It's an invitation to rest. You ever get tired of trying to manage your name, of your name being hallowed, of trying to manage what other people think about you? What other people say about you behind your backs. Um, what, what their opinions are of you and your actions and your career and your family and your children. And just managing all that is exhausting, right? You ever get tired of, of um, extending your kingdom, your reign of power in your workplace or in your family? Or... You ever get tired of imposing your will on other people? I know my wife gets tired of that. I know my children get tired of that. Of me, Just, just obey! I'm trying to impose my will and be in control. And what Jesus is inviting us into here is to rest. Because I was never in control. And you were never in control. And when you felt like it, it was just an illusion. And Jesus is inviting us into into rest because He is in control. And so when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, it's an opportunity to let our souls take a deep breath and exhale. Because you're not in charge, and neither am I. And that's actually good news, because God is sitting on his throne. And our deepest need is for that reign to be extended. And what this does is it actually frees us to acknowledge that things are not the way they should be. That things are not on earth as it is in heaven to weep and lament when 18-wheelers run over cars and children die. That is not the way it should be. And it, it frees us to actually acknowledge that, to not have to pretend that everything is okay, but instead to come before God and say, this is not the way it should be, and to cry out with our deepest pain and our deepest hurt. When our life and our relationships and our world are not the way that they should be. And then to turn from that weeping, to turn from that lamenting, and repeatedly put our trust, put our hope in a good God. Whose peace and righteousness and justice and goodness, whose reign, whose light will break through in the darkness. Prayer is hopeful. Third, prayer is Nourishing. Jesus continues with three more petitions. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. Now this prayer for giving us our daily bread is is a bit of an odd prayer because if you're like me, you tend to think that I have daily bread, I have clothes to wear, I have a house to live in, not necessarily because God is giving it to me, but, but because I work hard. Because I have a job and I raise money for that job. And I went to grad school and, and I have daily bread and my family has daily bread because I bust my tail. But what Jesus is actually acknowledging here is that something, there's something more fundamental, more basic than my hard work that provides for my needs. And it is that God is caring for me. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't work hard. And don't be faithful in your job, and everything will just work itself out. No, but, but there's something actually underneath all of that, that God is using all of that, that he is at work. And that's why you have food to eat when you leave church and go eat lunch. Because you belong to a Father in heaven who loves you, and who's caring for you, and delights to meet your needs. But the other thing that this prayer helps us see is that um, God cares about even the smallest, most mundane details of our lives, and that we tend to think about prayer as the biggies. Someone is sick, someone is dying. Um, you know, I have a big decision to make. Should I take this job or this job or who should I marry? And we should absolutely pray for those things. But what this prayer, what this petition shows us is that God cares even about the most mundane, seemingly meaningless details of our lives. that is how intimately he is involved in your life and how deeply he cares for you that even the smallest things he sees. And Jesus continues, another petition, forgive us our debts. And what Jesus is recognizing here is that our sin puts us at odds with God. It makes us debtors. Now we tend to think about asking for forgiveness for sins as the way into the Christian life, that I acknowledge that I am a sinner in the general sense, and that I need a savior in the general sense, and so I pray to receive Jesus, and that is how I become a Christian. And then, a lot of times, we tend to think that, okay, now I'm done with that needing forgiveness stuff. But what Jesus is actually saying here is that asking for forgiveness regularly is a regular part, a daily part of the Christian life. It's not just the way into the Christian life, it's the way of the Christian life, now, this isn't begging for forgiveness. This isn't asking for forgiveness and thinking, you know, that God maybe isn't going to forgive me. But we don't want to presume upon his forgiveness either. This is why we do confession of sin. This is why we, do, we, we confess, I am not living the way that you have created and designed me to live. And I need to be forgiven for that. Now I speak with students a lot at, at Sanford, because most Sanford students grew up Um, In Christian private schools, they grew up in churches, they grew up in Christian homes. And they come to Sanford and they start saying things like, I'm really bored with following Jesus. My faith feels stale. I feel like I'm not really growing in my faith. And one of the reasons that they say those things, one of the reasons that that happens is because people stop thinking about sin, specifically, not just in the general sense, yes, I'm a sinner, but thinking about the ways in which they wrong other people and they wrong God by what they think and what they say and what they do. And they stop thinking about that. And so they have a nice general sense of Jesus, but very little joy in their life. And the reason is because they've, they've stopped thinking about sin. Think about it this way. I have my glasses on so I can see you all pretty well. But if I take my glasses off... I have a nice general sense of you. Um, I can see that there are people in the seats. I can see somewhat the colors that you're wearing. um, And, that you know, there's there's a place over here where there aren't that many people. Like, I have a nice general sense of the room, but I can't really see specifically the details of who you are. I can't make out anyone's identity particularly. And what happens is when we cease to confess sin and think specifically about our sin, we have a general sense of sin, and so we have a general sense of Jesus. We have this nice kind of general sense that I need Jesus, and he's good, and and that's great. But we don't have a specific sense of Jesus. And then when we begin to confess sin, and we begin to see our deep need and his massive mercy on our behalf, we begin to see Jesus more clearly. And we get a very specific, very beautiful vision of our Savior. So when, when, when Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our debts, he's not saying do this to go to this place of shame and self-loathing and navel-gazing and woe is me. No, he's saying it so that you can see clearly, so you can see clearly the goodness of God on your behalf. So he says, forgive us our debts. And then lastly, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is basically just a humble admission that you and I do not have the resources in and of ourselves to safely navigate our own lives. That's that's what this prayer is about, that, that daily I actually need to be delivered from evil and from temptation, and I need God to rescue me every day. Paul Miller who wrote a great book on prayer called A Praying Life, and I strongly recommend it. He says this about prayer. He says, if you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. And what Jesus is saying when he says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, is he saying, you need more. And time and money and talent to safely navigate your own life. You need daily intervention by the God of the universe to deliver you, to rescue you, When you you take all of these petitions together, what you get is this picture of prayer, that prayer is nourishing because it connects us to the one who provides for all of our needs, that God provides for our food and for our shelter and for our clothing, for our most basic and mundane needs, that he provides for our deep spiritual needs, for forgiveness, that he provides faithful deliverance and rescue from sin. Prayer is nourishing because it connects us with the God who delights to meet those needs. Lastly, prayer is gracious. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, when you pray, don't think, if I can pray long enough... If I can pray hard enough, if I can pray with enough sincerity and enough faith, then God will hear me and answer my prayer. He will have to do this. And oftentimes we get frustrated with prayer because we're not getting the answer that we want or the answer that we think we deserve and we're getting frustrated and we think if I can just get the mechanics of prayer right, then God will hear me. Then God will answer my prayers. And what Jesus is saying is no, no, no. Nothing could be further from the truth. Prayer is not let me get this right so that God can help me, so he can hear me, so he can answer me. Instead, it's let me pray because I have a father in heaven who knows what I need before I even ask. That's what he says in verse eight. That before you ever uttered a word or drew a breath, he knew exactly what you needed and was at work meeting those needs. See, we we know this because Jesus, the one who is teaching us this prayer, knows what needs to be done in order for this prayer to be answered. Before his kingdom could come, before his name could be hallowed, it, it was going to be mocked. It was going to be slandered on the way to the cross. Before his kingdom could come, before his will could be fully and finally and completely accomplished, Jesus had to crush the kingdom of darkness by being crushed on the cross. Before you or I could ever think of asking for forgiveness, he had already sent Jesus, his son, to achieve forgiveness for us by his Blood Before you or I could ask to be delivered from evil, Jesus was putting evil and death to death by rising from the grave. And prayer is this gracious gift in which we, as we pray, our hearts and our lives are being realigned, reconnected to this reality that God is already at work caring for us, meeting our needs, providing for us, What prayer does is it connects us to the reality that God is already doing these things. He's already answering these prayers before we even ask through the work of his son. John Calvin, the great theologian, puts it this way. He says, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek after him. That they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises. That they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, he says, Christians pray that they may declare that from him and him alone they hope and expect all good things. See, prayer is gracious because it connects us to the God who's already working, already saving, already forgiving, already rescuing. A number of years ago, there was a campaign started at Duke University in North Carolina. and This was before the explosion of social media in our day. And the campaign was called the Me Too campaign. And what administrators had had realized, had recognized at Duke is that they had, their students were under an enormous amount of stress, and they had tons of anxiety, and there was a lot of depression and a lot of suicidal thoughts, and, uh, and so they thought, if we can create an online space where our students can anonymously post uh, the things that they're struggling with, the things that they're worried about, the things that they're anxious about, maybe, maybe students will begin to see that other people, that their peers are struggling in the same way, and they won't feel quite as alone. So here's, I just want to read to you some of the things that some of the students wrote. One person said, I gained 30 pounds in college, and I look like a pig. I long for a day when I look in the mirror and I see something beautiful. Another one said, I feel like I'm drowning from the inside out. I would really, really love to not be depressed or anxious anymore. What? is wrong with me. One more student said, I feel so alone. I don't know what I'm doing here, I just want to be okay and something tells me that won't happen until I transfer but I don't know if I can make it until then. Now why do I read these? I read these because in many ways these are prayers. These are people, these are students pouring out their lives, pouring out their hearts, their pain, their fear, their struggles. But it's just going out to the nameless, faceless void of cyberspace. But what if you could pray like that? With that kind of intensity, and that kind of vulnerability, and that kind of honesty about your sin, and your pain, and your hurt and your disappointment, and your fear, and your hopes, and your dreams, and your joys. What if you could pray like that? But it didn't go out to the nameless, faceless void. It went to the face of your Father in heaven who knows you, who sees you, who loves you, who is caring for you, who shelters you. What if you could pray like that? how would that shape you? How would that change you? Would you pray with me now? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you teach us to be a community that prays? That we don't pray because we feel guilty, but we pray because we know that you love us and that you hear us and that you love to meet our needs, that you're a good Father. Would you teach us to pray, not to be heard, not to manipulate or try to get you to give us what we want, but to pour out our hearts to you. Because you already know what we need. And you've already accomplished it through the death and resurrection of your son. Would you teach us that? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia.